Welcome to the Concordia Publishing House podcast, where we consider everything in the light of Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm your host, Elizabeth Pittman. Healthy leadership is instrumental to the effectiveness of any and all organizations. Today, we'll be talking about leadership, what sets Lutheran leaders apart, and what leaders should be looking for as they navigate change in their organizations. Our guest today is Dr. Donald Christian. Don is the president and CEO of Concordia University, Texas. Welcome, Don. Well, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me on the show today. It's great to have you. You look like you're refreshed after your uh, vacation up in Maine. Well, I wasn't necessarily vacation. One of the oh. things I say very strongly <laughs> to my people is if you leave and work, you're still working. Well, and I think we've learned that this year yeah, that you can right. we can work from just about anywhere. Um, and there are worse places to have to work than up in, up yeah, in Maine. Yeah, that's true. It's, it's a nice refreshing from 100 degrees in Texas to 50 degrees in Maine. So, yeah. That is true. I have a lot of uh, my in-laws are all from Texas and we hear all of the stories about how the weather is worse there than anywhere, no matter the time of year. So, And it's also the best here from anywhere, too. <laughs> Well, that's that's a that's a whole nother episode. So I'm gonna let that one go. Oh. <laughs> well, um, how before we jump into talking about leadership, how are things on the Concordia campus? Oh, thanks for asking. You know, I refer to these times as VUCA, right? Volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And certainly every day has been like that for these last four four five weeks now. Um, we launched campus um we launched our school year on August 25th and welcome students to campus. All of our classes are what we call high flex and hybrid. You can be in the classroom or remote at the same time. And students are engaged in learning and talking and it seems to be going well, but there are a lot of students who are choose opting to join remotely. And I think a lot of this for health and safety reasons for themselves or their family members. But attendance has been great, uh, numbers look good compared to last year down a little bit like everybody else, but we're making budget and we feel really, really good about the launch of the year. Well, that's great to hear. And I know we're grateful for all of your faculty and staff who are working so hard because uh, it's not easy to do in-person and online teaching and juggle all of that. It's not. I've had a faculty member refer to as juggling juggling in the, in the circus. Um, yeah. And they are exhausted. What I do know is that they feel good about the opportunity for students to have the choice of being on ground or remote, which makes them, all of them feel a lot more safe. That's my kids are grade school and high school level and their schools, their teachers are working again, they're in person, but they, students do have the op option to be yeah. virtual if they, they so desire. And some are taking them up on that and boy, those, God bless our teachers because mm -hmm. at every level, because they definitely are pouring everything they have into our kids That's this right. year. That's right. So, well, as we think about leadership, you've, this is something you've studied for a really long time, correct? That's true. That's right. What, what triggered your interest in really zeroing in on this as an area of study? You know, I get asked that question a lot and I think back in my life and probably I was always drawn to want to be in charge. Um, at least my mom had other words for that. <laughs> um, and I was a high school band director. So leading a group of students that I wasn't actually doing the work, they were actually doing it. And somewhere in there really shifting to what it meant to lead a group. 
And then just kind of reading about it and then practicing it and being invited to opportunities to lead and then uh, really going deep into it and getting my doctorate in that area and then being tapped on the shoulder to lead here at the university as a dean of business. I led other things before that and just really realizing that if I know more about leadership and I practice it over and over again, um, the, practice the disciplines of leadership, you can actually get pretty good at it. I have a bunch of books on my shelf on writers writing about writing or craftsmen talking about their craft. And I've realized that leadership is really a craft. You have a natural bent towards it, but at the end of the day, you need to show up, you need to do the work that's required and you need to keep getting better at it. So what are some of those ineffable qualities that make a great leader? Wow. Uh, um, I think one of them, and this probably gets into the whole idea of, you use that term, the Lutheran leader, right? Is a deep sense of humility and a deep confidence in what you're doing. Uh, Jim Collins in his book, uh, Good to Great, calls it level five leadership. We in our um, theology actually call it humble confidence. You know, it's that whole idea of that Satan sinner. I know mm -hmm. I'm a sinner every day and I know I'm saved through faith in Jesus Christ. So I can humbly walk with confidence in the future. And I th I've had a chance to hear some of your talks on this. And when you're talking specifically about Lutheran leadership, you really do go to those tensions there as a place to start. Is that right? That is very true. Um, our whole theology is based very strongly on paradox. Uh, you know, God and man, right? Um, Saint and sinner, law and gospel, left hand, right hand kingdom. And the ability to embrace paradox is a sign of a mature leader. And that's not just scriptural. Actually, over the last 10 years, a lot of research has gone into that on leadership. And people are writing this idea of being able to not manage paradox, but embrace it and live in that tension that really produces creativity, produces better thinking, and can invite other voices into the conversation. So for those of us as Lutherans, our identity definitely plays into how we lead, correct? Absolutely. Um, as far as how we yes. approach challenges and how we how we are able to set ourselves you know, apart. You asked the question of when I thought about leadership, and I don't think this was definitely think about leadership, but I have a specific moment in my life after transitioning from being a high school band director to working at a large urban church in Houston, um, kind of quasi-DCE parish administrator. And I was reading a book and a very simple statement. Your worth is not found in what you do. It's found in Christ's love, right? And that sense lifted something off my shoulders. Uh, I think when being a band director, a lot of it was about ad adulation of what I was able to do. And once I got rid of that, it opened things up so much. And it's a, it's a daily discipline to remind yourself it's not about you. And as a leader, you also have to take on the mantle that it is all about you at the same time. Well, that's definitely a paradox to have to work through and balance because if it tips too far either right. way, yep. uh, I think you could run into some some difficulties. So I know this year we've seen change whether we want it or not. And every, especially in our churches and schools and our, our universities, whether you were planning to have a year of virtual learning or changing everything you do, change came. How can, how do we help our people 
um, when these unexpected changes hit. I mean, I think it's different than when you know change is going to have to come right. and you can kind of manage sure. the timing of it. But when unexpected change comes our way, um, what should the leader be thinking about? So let me go let me go quick back to our Lutheran theology mm-hmm. and then come back to some very practical things. Um, we, we believe in a theology of the cross where I often say uh, bumper sticker of theology of the cross is life sucks and God is still there. And we can do change happens and God is still there, right? And we live in that constant, call it attention again, of knowing that life is not as we expect it to be and that's where God shows up the most. And so in the midst of change that we're not expecting, God is really, really deeply showing up. So a couple practical things for us. Um, never waste a good crisis. Uh, we have done th- we have moved farther ahead as a university in the last six months than we would have for three years in many areas had we not been impacted by these changes. Keep focused on the mission and vision um, and or what your customer needs and wants, right? Think about that issue all the time, no matter what's going on. Provide choice for people, which gives them control, right? So when you have no control, find the place where you can have control and give that to people. And then finally, keep focused on the future. Just, I have to keep reminding myself and my team, yes, we have to manage the day-to-day and figure out how do we how do we do the contact tracing when somebody does get sick, right? And how does that happen? And three years from now, things will be different and we have to be ready for that too. Absolutely. I think we've seen um, churches, not churches, but organizations, whether they be churches or schools or you name any it. Any business, yeah. Any business, if if they were in a um, spot where the change was needed, but they hadn't woken up to that realization yet, the gas pedal has been floored. And basically at this point, it's kind of change or die. And well, I was just... And I, I was going to say, go ahead. When we hear the headlines of colleges having to shut down programs, furlough hundreds of people, and it always is followed with because of COVID, I just chuckle because it wasn't because of COVID. It was because of what had not happened beforehand. Or it's old business models. I was having a conversation with um, our neighbor in Maine, is a symphony conductor. He conducts a small symphony in Delaware and in North Florida. And they're really struggling because how do you run a symphony when nobody can show up for concerts and your musicians can't even be that close to one another? And he said to me last week when we were talking, the model was already broken. This has broken it faster and more deeply. And now what do we do? I think there's a lot of organizations that are having to experience that. And it really is a time, like you said, never let a good crisis go to waste. Um, for everyone, whatever organization they're in, to really get back to their core values and their core mission, which I would imagine as a leader, it doesn't make reducing services, offerings, programs any easier, but it definitely gives clarity as to what you would need to keep. That's correct. I I think you're right on. So many times, um, one of the hardest things we do as leaders is what do we say no to and what do we say yes to? And that really is driven by mission, vision, and values. And the organizations have been doing that for the last five years. We're in a much better place than those who had it. And I would take that down to families, right? What do I say no to and yes to in budget? 
so that when a crisis hits, we can manage it. When people worry about budget and finance in an organization like ours, you know, $55 million budget, it's like running your own family's checkbook. Do you know where the money is? Are you bringing in more money than you're spending? And do you have some money put away for any day? Well, I think that's that's useful because not all of our listeners are going to be the president of the university or the you know the head of a school or whatnot. Um, but I would venture to guess that most of them have a leadership role in some capacity, whether that's obviously in their family or maybe they volunteer right. in a leadership role at their church or in their community. All at differing levels. There's differing levels of where they're plugged in as leaders, and this applies to all of us. I mean, there's we can all stand to improve as a leader um, for the good of those around right. us. It, it's a concept of vocation. Uh, wherever mm -hmm. God has put us, whatever station, we have certain responsibilities with that. Um, and often uh, the role of leadership is very different than the title of leadership, right? And leadership shows up in different places. Parent, um, friend, with a group of friends sometimes, as a student, wherever you are, some, it's just in, in the middle of a crisis. Um, you have to, people have to step up in that role and that vocation. And I will tell students, the more you prepare for that ahead of time, the better off you are when you are called upon to actually do that. Um, for, for me, it's very simple. I tell our college students, by, sh by getting out of bed in the morning and showing up on time for your 7.30 class, you're practicing leadership. Um, by raising your hand and asking a hard question, you're practicing leadership. By volunteering to be a part of a group and do something you've never done before, you're practicing leadership. And so when you have to actually do that in a paying job or in a crisis, you're ready. Absolutely. Now I've heard a lot of things when change is discussed or when opportunities for something new or to remove something that may or not, may not have been working, there's always the person or multiple people who pop up with, but we've always done it that way and are very averse to having to change. Sure. How, how can a leader help um, bridge that attitude of, well, we've always done it this way and I'm dug in and I don't want to have to change because it's uncomfortable for me? So one of the, one of the responsibilities of a leader in their vocation is to make hard decisions. I often say I don't get paid for making a lot of decisions. I get paid for making very few really, really hard decisions. And most of the time they have to do with personnel. And in this case, to use that example of the one or two people, my line is very simply, I'm sorry you feel that way, but this is the direction we're heading. We, my calling as the leader of an institution or of a family, name it right, any organization mm -hmm. is to get us to the X point in the future. In order to get there, we have to make these changes so that we are financially healthy, we are missionally healthy, we can make it to the future. If you don't want to be part of that, I can't change that for you. I, I can give you the tools for you to choose to change. I can give you the environment for you to make that change easier. I can never make anybody change. And um, that would be really, really hard conversations to have, be it with an employee or with a spouse or a child or a friend, whatever it might be, a congregation member. Um, how many pastors have not had these conversations with congregation members and fought that one or two congregation member for years, destroying the congregation or the pastor 
rather than confront them and say, this may not be the place for you. But within the church, especially, or in within religious organizations, that can oh. be tough because those are, I mean, that's your, your, going for the hard discussions with your brothers and sisters and often, you know, well, we just, Oh, but they're so nice. We don't want to have to. So let me go back to this Lutheran theology, driving a leader. I mentioned earlier, right hand, left hand kingdom theology, really understanding when those are used. The, how does Walter refer to them? The proper understanding of long gospel, right? We do this all the time, especially in Christian organizations. When we have to make hard decisions, there's going to be somebody who says, well, I thought this was a Christian organization, which really translates to why aren't you doing what I want you to do or why aren't you being nice to me? And it's happened to me many times. And I look at the person and I say, we are absolutely a Christian organization. I love you. I forgive you. And my calling from God is to make sure this healthy this organization is healthy, so you're going to have to leave. The body has to stay healthy, right? Absolutely. It's, it's it's hard on the leader, though, but, you know, to have have the wherewithal to recognize where your um, responsibility lies. Yeah, I have, I have I had a boss once and he shared with me the 3365 principle. And I remember tell people this all the time. I can deal with the problem and the remnants of that are going to last for 30 days. Or I cannot deal with the problem and still have that problem here 365 days from now. That's a, that's a good way to look at it. So that's, it's, it's, that's hard. I mean, I, you see it even with um, working with volunteers, you know, there's that oh, one yeah. volunteer and, and it's like either people will look like who's, who's going to step up and really deal with this, which can be tricky. And I, I don't know where I learned this probably came through time, but if you don't deal with that one person, your best people will leave mm-hmm. because they will get frustrated and they're looking to you as a leader to step up and say something. I, I, you you talked about churches. It breaks my heart to see this happen so often in Christian organizations, especially in churches, because people don't know how to take a hard stand in making a decision for the good of the body. Um, I will say this many times. My co- I am called – for the health of the institution, let me put it a different way. This sounds really hard to say, but I say it to myself and others. I'm called to take care of the institution, not to take care of individuals, which is really hard to say as somebody who loves people. It's hard, but when you are taking care of the organization, that's creating a better culture for the right. individuals. That is how, right. How can a, a leader recognize when the culture of their organization needs some work? Um, you know, I think we instinctively know it, but the fear of asking the hard question and hearing the responses, when I first became president six years ago, five months after being named president, we took a culture inventory. We hired a firm to come in from the West Coast who had done this for organizations. 97% of our employees responded. Wow. It, was an, it was an hour-long survey they had to take. I was shocked. It was not pretty. It sounds like they had something to say. Yeah, they And, you know, I had been a part of this culture for nine years before I became president. So it was no surprise to me. I knew exactly what this culture was. But now we had hard data to know where people were feeling it, what were the issues, and what we needed to work on. We started working on it. It was part of our five-year strategic plan. 
we took the same survey two years after that and the same survey last year for a third time. It has not improved a lot across the institution. Certain areas it's improved, in certain places it's improved. So one of the issues with culture is it takes a long time to change it. I still have people refer to things that happened five years ago or more as, well, that's the problem with this institution. And doesn't that frustrate you when things have changed? You know what? And they, they, their mind slammed shut even, even a decade ago or further, and they haven't taken a second look. And you just want to say, come on, let's, let's take a look. Their life is actually better. (laughs) And um, again, some mentor of mine said to me long time ago, people are people and you're not going to change them into being something you want them to be. And that's what it is. This, this is very true. And unfortunately we are all sinful people and that's right. we we have, we have our challenges sometimes. What if, what if the top leaders of an organization, maybe they know that a, a change is needed or there's a culture problem, but they're not willing to act on it. How can either mid-level leadership or just your run-of-the-mill employees, community members try to affect change when it doesn't look like it's going to come from the top? <laughs> I'm reflecting on my my life over the past 50-some years and the many times I tried to do that and often failed because it was not my vocation to do that. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, I fantastic conversation with a pastor of a congregation in Houston. And I forget what the context was, but he said to me, many times I get calls from members of other congregations complaining about their pastor or their congregation. And and he had some official role at the district, I think. And he said, you know, I tell them, God has not called me to take care of your congregation. He's called me to take care of my congregation. I'm not going to interfere unless I am asked to do it by the pastor or the leader. So that's one way. So that's the difficult part of it. So let me come back to how can you? You can control what you can control. So as a mid-level leader, if you have a group of people that you get to influence and work with, build a fantastic culture within that bubble. Um, Try to rub shoulders and influence others. If you're asked by the leader, give your opinion. Don't be afraid. If it gets so bad that you have to speak out, speak out, but don't believe just because you're speaking out, somebody's going to listen to you. Let's go back for a second to that idea of um, vocation and authority, because we Mm. have, by the fourth commandment, all been placed in, we're we're all in our lane. That's right. So how can those of us who are not um, in the, the leadership role and there are many people who are not, who definitely have an opinion and think that they need to be heard. Um, but that doesn't always fit with, I mean, it's, it's hard for us to, it, yeah, it doesn't fit with the culture. And it's also hard for us to remember that we've been put in a position for a reason. Right. So how can, how can we step back and think about that? So I think that one of the ways that can work is for that individual to, first of all, do a self-check. And what I believe and feel about my organization, is it true or is it just me? If it is true, how bad is it impacting the organization and its mission and future viability? 
if it's legal, moral, ethical, it's kind of my job to raise my hand and go, something's not right here. I've got to have great conversations with people who have been whistleblowers in large organizations and um, to listen to them tell the story of how long they waited because it's not their job, right? Nobody has asked them to speak about this. And yet knowing that if they don't speak about it, this is a struggle right here. If I don't speak about it, am I going against my conscience and against God's will for my life in this role? Is maybe my vocation to be the person who exposes the emperor has no clothes or not? And know that either decision to say something or not say something is a risk. And so that person has to manage that risk. It's a tricky situation for sure. What and a lot of leaders are idea generators. And I've I've worked with those with every day there's another new idea, new new it's it's coming fast and furious and it makes your head spin to try to keep up with where they're going. So how can we how can we avoid the trap of the next big thing? Mm. So that was me. And as long as I was in mid-management, it was fine. <laughs> I used to say when I was dean, middle management, I'm, it was not for me. Now that I'm president, I go back to middle management any day. Because in this role, the more you have influence on an organization and the more you have a role that impacts larger groups, it gets really dangerous if you're coming up with a new idea every day. I actually have on my desk two sticky notes, one on each side of my drawer, one that was actually written, I want to say, maybe eight years ago. And this was a faculty member coming to me. He said, you know what? You might want to sleep on some ideas before you start talking about them. So this note actually says sleep on that idea. I wrote this eight years ago. I still have it. Two or three years earlier, I was talking to one of my mentors. I had become president. I was talking about our strategic planning. And he looked at me and said, don't dawdle. So I have these two signs on my desk, <laughs> yin and yang of, of executive leadership. Sleep on that idea. Don't dawdle. I, so I think what has to happen is accepting what that role is. We need idea generators, don't we? But we don't need them in the center of the organization. We need them on the edges of the organization. And the person in the center of the organization can create the culture can create the parameters and can create the resources for ideas to be generated that can almost in some ways be bubbled up to say, that's the one. And at the end of the day, it is my role to probably come up with that one or two idea for the future of this organization that says, that's where we're going. I think it can be tricky when ideas come up for some organizations to think that this idea, this program, this is it. This is the silver bullet oh, that's going to yeah. fix our, insert your problem here. And it becomes um, dizzying to see the programs keep shifting because they keep changing what they think yeah. is the silver bullet. How can we avoid that trap? Have a strong vision, have a strategic plan, execute the strategic plan. Um, what is, when I took over as president, we had to make some serious changes. Some financial issues had risen. We had lost some revenue. We were losing some things. And we knew that if we didn't make those changes, we'd be in trouble. So our first five-year plan that I put together is called a strong foundation. I could refer to it as the least sexy strategic plan ever written. And 
the most strategic strategic plan for Concordia University, Texas. Because of that strategic plan, we weathered COVID-19 extremely well. We ended last fiscal year better than we ever have. And we launched this fiscal year in a positive mode and students learning and attendance going well. So those all things. So, and what that strategic plan kept me from doing was chasing silver bullets. Well, it sounds like you found an ineffable plan to put into place for your... <laughs> Thanks for sharing that word. <laughs> for, your, for your university. I do my homework. Oh. <laughs> um, little inside baseball there. Um, anyway, back to leadership. Um, <laughs> Sorry, audience. We're going off on a tack here. That... You'll have to um, contact either one of us to figure out what that was about. <laughs> send us a direct message and we'll tell you the backstory of that one. Um, so a lot of organizations, not all, but a lot of organizations have to deal in varying capacities with the board of directors and have to think about the role of governance. Um, one, what is the role of the board and of governance? And should our churches and schools care about that in their day-to-day -day operations? I got to work at a church for a while. And while we were there, we made some changes to governance, which were really positive for the institution, but also saw people leave because they didn't like it. And right before I left the second time, after I was a, more of a lay role there, um, we went to what's known as policy governance, um, which really gave a lot of, I'll call it the word authority, to a board rather than an individual or scattered authority across the institution. So let me go back to the original question. Um, a board is there to protect, it's, it's called a fiduciary duty. It protects the institution, which allows it to live out its mission long-term. Um, without that type of protection, think of it as hedges, right? Um, as somebody explained to me, you get a, it's kind of like the Ten Commandments. You get a new puppy, and all you have is a front yard. You put a fence up in the front yard, not because you're punishing the puppy, because you're protecting the puppy, right? And so the board puts up that fence for the people who are doing the work of the church or the organization so that they can do their work without asking a bunch of questions and getting permission all the time and freedom, but with responsibilities towards those um limitations, so to speak. The board also has to kind of is the owner of the mission in many ways. So many times in smaller organizations or churches, many smaller churches, if the pastor or the CEO or the ED is the one who owns the vision and mission, when they leave, which they inevitably will, the next person comes in, it could be a whole completely different vision and mission. Uh, I love this when we this was 15 years ago, right before I moved to Austin, we were at a church in Houston, Trinity Lutheran Church, downtown Houston, and we were getting ready to call a senior pastor after we had had a long-term senior pastor than a short interim one. And we were working with Lestro of Cornerstone Consulting. And he said, you can either call a pastor and help let him help you set the strategic plan, or you can set the strategic plan and call a pastor to live that out. We chose the second one because as he said, and I agree, the congregation is here for the long haul. The pastor will come and go. So find a pastor who fits with the mission, vision, and strategy of the congregation to take it where it wants to go. And I believe that's very true of a board. Um, for our case, an organization like this, the board hires the executive to help 
that executive live out its vision and mission of where it wants to go. And then it's up to me to enact it. So no matter whether we're talking about a big organization or even our family, when we know what our vision is, that definitely helps clarify yeah. what we're going to do and what how we're going to base our decisions. Absolutely. Um, it, it allows you to make decisions that are good for the unit, the organization, whatever that might be. It allows you to say yes to some things, no to other things. It allows you to resource those decisions in a better way. And it allows you to measure better too. When it's very clear, clarity creates all kinds of great things. Um, lack of clarity, it's tough. <laughs> so what is what as leaders thinking about improving their skills, I know you mentioned the books on your shelf, what are some of the things that leaders can do um, to really build up those mm -hmm. muscles um, and make sure that they are um, continuing to keep their eyes on what the mission of their organization is and leading their people in a healthy way? So for me, it has been several different paths of continuing to learn about and become better as a leader. One is um, figure out your best way of learning and keep learning. So for me, it's reading oftentimes. Um, and for me, it's not just reading about leadership either, because after 100 leadership books, there's not much more to be said. So it's reading broadly and doing that. Secondly, um, knowing about, well, secondly, listening to others, setting up mechanisms by which to hear both from other leaders, as well as the people who work alongside you and keeping that, quote, open door. But that really comes to asking really good questions and not and really listening to that. And thirdly, it's really the inner work of leadership. And that comes from knowing about yourself and what, what strengths you have to move that leadership forward and also what obstacles could get in the way. One of the things I always tell leaders, especially as they move into more executive roles is get a coach and get a coach who uses a personality tool that is rich my coach uses the Berkman uh, personality tool. Others use Myers-Briggs. There's uh, several out there too, but something that tells you about yourself that you may not know. And so over the last five, six years with my coach, I keep discovering things about who I am and how I relate to my team members and how they relate to me. Um, there's a idea out there's called the Joe Harry window. There's four quadrants. One quadrant is what do I know about myself and you know about me? Well, you're looking at me right now and you know, and I know that I'm bald, right? There's no question about it. I can't fake it or anything. Right? The other other quadrant, second quadrant is what do you know? What do I know about me that you may not know about me? And that could be as simple as where I went to high school to what I had for breakfast, etc. Third quadrant is what do you know about me that I don't know about me? And that becomes where I, when I ask questions, I get reviews, the board tells me things, other leaders tell me things, but the most important one is the fourth quadrant. What don't I know about myself and what don't you know about me? And that's what we discover in the inner work of leadership. Which say the other piece of that is um, just quieting oneself down. And over the last couple of years, I've begun to practice meditation, which for me is just breathing. Um, sometimes just driving in the car, right? Good breathing. Sometimes in the middle of a crisis, just breathe. Um, but it's just really being quiet letting scripture speak to you, letting nature speak to you, um, just settling oneself so that 
you're not always moving. It's the inner work. It's it's a big piece, I think. I think I think you're right. I think it is a big piece, and it takes a lot of um, mm. vulnerability to be able to quiet yourself enough to really look at your your skills and your makeup, yeah. you know, warts and all. I know on our team um, here, we've been very intentional over the years of doing different tests. So the last we we do mm -hmm. the Gallup strengths every couple of years and look at that, and it's it's fascinating to watch them change. But we've we've done it, and it really does help. We've done DISC and other things. It really does help to know where your coworkers oh. are or your employees are so that you know, like, okay, they're not reacting to me because they're cranky, but they're reacting to me because they're stressed. And this is the where they mm -hmm. go to when they're stressed. So it, it really is transformative when you are able to sit back and take a deep look at all of that. Yeah. You know, one of the disciplines of leaders is that they keep coming back to that. So for, for many organizations, they do this type of exercise, then they put the book back on the shelf and revisit it a year mm -hmm. later. And the discipline of continually looking at it oneself, bringing it to the team, keep the exercises going and the practice going, and knowing that there is always more to learn. And will you be vulnerable enough? I love, love that word. I don't know if you've read any Brene mm -hmm. Brown, but her, her book on leadership, Dare to so Lead. Good. It's oh, so good. it's fantastic. I would recommend it to anybody to read and to take to heart the whole idea of vulnerability. And I love this. It comes back to so much what we just talked about, the courage to enter into a, a conversation, not knowing what the outcome will be. Well, leader has, to, as, as she quotes, uh, quotes um, Teddy Roosevelt, you've got to have the courage to be in the arena. And that's you, right. You've got to, you've got to get in there. And I love her line. And this is where I'm living right now. If you haven't been in the arena, I really don't care what you have to this say. This is true. This is very <laughs> about true. About being in the arena. I mean, I'll listen to you, but don't tell me how to be in the arena if you've never been. Well, in the it's, arena. you've got to you've got to show that you have skin in the game, and I think a good a, there, right. that leads to the difference between someone who is a leader and someone who just simply has authority. And you can you can yeah. really separate those two, where people will follow the leader no matter their position or their title. Um, but yeah, to, to really have that courage and that, that vulnerability to step back and say, okay, this might be hard, but we're going to do it. One of the great things in my role is to see emerging leaders and to watch people step into the arena, mm -hmm. right? Without always being asked. And as, as I see those people, I will do everything I can for them to give them the opportunities to learn, to experience, um, to talk, they know that my door is always open to them. They can always come ask questions. I, my, my predecessor, Dr. Tom Seidel, was fantastic with me for that. In fact, I got to see him today. He was on campus. And he allowed me to walk into his office anytime when I was there and say, Tom, I don't get it. Why did you make that decision? Tell me more about this because I would not have done it. And I learned so much. But he allowed me to do that because I think he saw something in me that allowed him to be vulnerable. With so me. how can our, our leaders today start to identify those emerging leaders and how can we nurture them? So we've got to set up the next generation. Yeah, so you identify them by seeing who's raising their hand to volunteer. You identify them by people who are taking on new projects. You identify by them by um, watching them in their arenas and what's happening. And then you kind of start asking them questions, seeing where they're going, what's, what's happening, and then invest in them uh, personally, uh, resources for the organization. Here's what I know, and this is everybody knows about leadership, that when you invest in your best people, you might lose them, 
but it sure is better to invest in your best people than not to invest in them, right? Absolutely. Even if they go away. Absolutely. Well, this has been very um, helpful and encouraging. It definitely is. It's always good to have a check on how we're leading within our spheres of influence. So I appreciate your time today. Before we wrap up, why don't you let our listeners know um, where they can learn more about Concordia, Texas, and what your mission and vision is there? Sure. Um, so Concordia University, Texas, we are in Austin, Texas, the capital of the state, uh, located about 10 miles west of downtown. Our website is very easy, www.concordia.edu. We were obviously the very first yes, Concordia are. to get on the web. Um, there's, I'm not sure, I actually do know who to thank for that, and I thank him whenever I see him. Um, and yeah, explore our Concordia, but I would encourage our listeners to look at the Concordias that are affiliated with the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod as schools that are, who somebody says, the bleeding edge of society. Uh, we talk about welcoming students of all backgrounds, and we do that unabashedly. And when I look at our students, whether they be the 18-year-old coming on our campus or the 55-year coming back for an advanced degree to gain more skills, they are coming from all over the place. And what an opportunity for mission. What an opportunity to instill in them this idea of what we call Lutheran leadership that we've talked about, um, to build that humble confidence in them. Because we know that, here's what I believe, that the Lutheran learning model, which when we talk about Lutheran leadership, a lot of those issues are there, is the best way to learn. If I didn't believe that, I couldn't be doing this job. And when we help people experience that and live into that, understand it, um, they will make a difference in their communities and organizations and households and churches, wherever God puts them. So we talk about our mission as being that place where all people are welcomed to come together to develop themselves as critical thinkers, compassionate, act, act, learn to act compassionately and lead courageously. And that as an institution of higher education rooted in the liberal arts, rooted in the Lutheran tradition, Affiliated with the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, we're developing the heart, mind, soul, and body of students to go and make a difference in the world. Our vision is um, to be the premier university where the adventure of faith, learning, and life-changing experiences leads to meaningful work. And as we deliver that promise to our students and to our community at large, I believe that people's lives are made better. And ultimately, other people's lives are made better because of the work our graduates are doing. Well, we're very grateful for the work that you're doing on, on the Thank university you. campus. Thanks so much for being with us today. This was a great conversation and listeners, we'll catch you next time. Thanks so much. Let me give a quick shout out to CPH. You guys are doing good work. Thanks for the resources you give to our schools and our churches. We wouldn't be doing it without you all. So thank you. Thank you so much for that. We appreciate it. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Concordia Publishing House podcast. I pray that this time was valuable to your walk with Christ. We'd love to connect with listeners on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Concordia Pub. Visit cph.org for more resources to grow deeper in the gospel.